Good morning, everybody. And hello to those of you who are watching online, wherever you're watching right now or uh, on demand later. Thank you for joining us for worship. I want to ask you a question. What, what if you viewed your everyday work life, whether you're a student, stay-at-home mom or dad, uh, teacher, grocery store worker, manager, small business owners, what if you understood how that can how you can thrive spiritually and how your actual work life could um, just really enhance your walk with God instead of it being an impediment to your life. What if you really understood and actually were living that out? We are entering into, uh, as a church, a, a one-year, some of us on staff, a one-year uh, training on how to help connect the weekends to your everyday work life to get better at making that connection. And it starts, we're doing it with a partner organization that we work with for our, uh, uh, our pastoral residency, Made to Flourish is the name of the organization. And in partnership with them, we are doing a survey. It's kind of our first step in this year-long process. You're gonna be getting it in your inbox today, <clears throat> and it takes less than five minutes to fill out. So we can become, we, the church, can become a better church and can help you grow spiritually more, and all of us, if you'll fill out that survey. So we'd appreciate it if you would, if you'd, if you would do that. Uh, so at Five Oaks, we like to talk about the fact that understanding the Bible and your purpose in life doesn't have to be a mystery, so we jump into the Bible every single week, and that's what we're doing right now. So I invite you to take your Bible out and turn to the first page of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. If you're using a smartphone or tablet device, we are using the NIV, the New International uh, Version. <clears throat> so we are, excuse me, can you mute me a second? Okay, thank you. <laughs> there, I took care of that. Uh, we are doing an immersive study of Genesis 1 as we're gathering these weekends in the fall, and we're going to come back to it in January after Advent as well. And uh, we don't normally go that immersive into just a, a chapter of the Bible plus three verses, but that's what we're doing. And the reason we're doing it is because the first page of the Bible is, introduces almost all the major themes of the Bible. One of the themes that we're going to be looking at is the whole theme of work and our work life and what God has made us for and designed us for. And so it does it in such an incredible and breathtaking way uh, that it deserves an immersive study. It deserves a, you know, a, a dive into this where we just we take a deep plunge into this passage. And so let's pray as we come back to part two of a sermon that I started last week. I'll catch you up. I'll do a little recap at the beginning if you weren't here last week, didn't catch it. Uh, but we are um, going to pray for the Holy Spirit to illuminate his word to us. And this prayer is based on Genesis 1-1, John 1, and a verse from Psalm 119. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, in the beginning, you created the heavens and the earth. The word was with you when you created, and the word, your son, came to dwell among us. By your spirit, teach us the way of your son. And teach us from your written word. May it be a lamp for our feet and a light on our path. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here's, here's a quick recap. Genesis 1 is a literary 
masterpiece. Uh, when I was in upper elementary, junior high, I'm not sure, my mom won, the only thing she ever won in her whole life, <laughs> a drawing that she put in for, and she won a class at the local community college. And half the class was on music appreciation. And so she would come home with albums that she had to listen to, classical music albums. And she would tell me the things that she was learning, and she was telling me about the various instruments that were playing, and to listen for certain things. She was explaining kind of how it's put together. And I remember as a, as a young, you know, young guy of maybe 10, 12 years old, my eyes opening up and my ears opening up, and all of a sudden being able to listen to some music that before, you know, would have been like elevator music to me, all of a sudden it coming alive. Uh, to me in ways that I'd never had before and being able to appreciate. And that's kind of what we're trying to do with Genesis 1 in last week's sermon and this week's sermon is to just to raise a little bit of an appreciation of how this, the artistry in this chapter, because there's a lot of artistry in this chapter. So our effort to, to appreciate uh, Genesis 1 in an artistry began last week with a video from the Bible Project, a visual commentary on Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to go back and watch that again. So let's run that. The first book in the Bible is called Genesis. And we're going to look closely at the first page of the book of Genesis. It's a carefully crafted narrative about God creating and ordering the whole cosmos. Okay, let's check it out. Now, the opening line of the whole Bible is, In the beginning, God created the skies and the land. Now, your Bible translation might say the heavens and the earth. In biblical Hebrew, the word for heaven refers simply to the sky above. And the word for earth does not mean globe, but rather the land. The ground below us. Right. This line is summarizing what's going to happen in the following narrative, which starts in the next line. And it reads, now the land was wild and waste. This phrase rhymes in Hebrew. The land was tohu vavohu, which means unordered and uninhabited. This is the ancient way of talking about the pre-creation state, what we might call nothingness. For the biblical authors, non-existence means having no purpose and no order. And the next line uses another image to say the same thing. And darkness was on the face of the deep abyss. What's the deep abyss? Yeah, it's a dark, chaotic ocean. It's another common way the ancients described the non-reality that preceded creation. Now, here's where things start to get interesting, because in the midst of those dark waters, God is present. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Hebrew word for God's Spirit is ruach, which can refer to wind or breath or God's invisible presence. So you can't see it, but God is present in the darkness, ready to bring order so that life can flourish. Yes, and this ordering happens in a series of six days. Each day begins with the phrase, and God said, and then ends with the phrase, and there was evening and morning. Yeah, every day addresses those problems introduced in verse two, that there's no order and no inhabitants. So on days one through three, God splits apart that unordered darkness into three ordered realms. Then, on days four through six, God fills the uninhabited wasteland with creatures. Interesting. Let's see how that works. Okay. So, the first realm of order begins with light on day one. Ah, yes. Let there be light. This is God's own glorious light that fills and contains the darkness 
as he separates day from night. God's establishing the order of time. Okay, and then on day two, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. What's the vault? In the ancient culture of the biblical authors, the sky was perceived as a solid dome that holds back waters. God's depicted here as splitting the chaos waters in half, above and below, which creates the realms of the sky and the seas. And then on day three, let the waters under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. God is establishing the realm of the land and it emerges out of the chaotic waters. And then there's a bonus creative act on day three. God invites plants and fruit trees with seed to emerge out of the land. Okay, so we've got the realms of time, the realm of the sky and the seas, and the land. And they all have order. Right. Now, it's time to go back and fill these realms of days one through three with inhabitants. This is what happens on days four through six. So in day four, let there be lights in the vaults of the sky. God installs these lights, the sun, moon, and stars, as signs and symbols that reflect God's own light. He gives them his own royal power to separate day and night. Then on day five, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the land. Yeah, these are the creatures that live in the waters below and those that fly near the waters above. Then finally on day six, let the land produce living creatures. They emerge up out of the ground to live on the land. And then matching that bonus act of creation on day three, God makes a special land creature, human, or in Hebrew, Adam. Then God provides all of those plants from day three as abundant food. Now over and over, God says what he created was good. But then after making humans, God says that it is very good. Yes, humanity is the climax of days one through six, and their importance is explained in the first poem in the Bible. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So humans come up from the ground like the other land creatures, but they're also more. They're God's image, which means that together, men and women embody and represent the creator within his creation. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, ruling over the creatures. This is the purpose of being God's image, to oversee creation as God's partners and representatives in the world. Very cool. Now, after the six days, we get a concluding line that links back to the key words of the opening line. And so we're completed, the skies and the land and all their inhabitants. Except there's one more day. It stands outside the pattern of days one through six. It's the big climax. And God completed on the seventh day the work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and set it apart as holy. So God rests on the seventh day. This is a standard biblical image where God, after ordering the cosmos, comes to rest and dwell in his sacred space. It's like the whole world is a holy temple where God lives with his people. Now that phrase, there was evening and morning, it doesn't appear on day seven. That's right. The seventh day has no end. That's because Genesis 1 is describing God's ideal vision for the whole cosmos. A place where God lives with his partners to rule the world in harmony forever. Yes, the seventh day is the goal of creation. It's actually so important that the author of Genesis 1 has woven the number seven into every part of the story. 
There are seven days of creation, seven announcements that creation is good. There are seven Hebrew words in the opening verse, and then two times seven Hebrew words in verse two. And then the statement about the seventh day has three lines of seven words. Wow. So the first page in the Bible is doing way more than just telling us how the world was made. Right. Genesis 1 has been designed to show us that God's purpose is to share creation with his images so they can rest and rule it with him forever. And that purpose is what the rest of the biblical drama is all about. All right, that, that should go a long ways in creating a sense of an appreciation for the literary artistry, the theological points that Genesis 1 is trying to make. Last week, we spent a little extra time looking at the number seven because we, we talked about the fact that number seven, which is written out in Hebrew uh, before vowels were added to the Hebrew alphabet or markings for vowels to the Hebrew alphabet, they're the same word. They look the same. They sounded different when they were spoken, but they looked the same in writing. And there was an association with there between the word seven and the word completeness, wholeness, perfection, um, holiness in a sense. Uh, that, that is the whole idea behind the seven. And that's why that seven is so important. And then it gets woven in ways that you can't, you're just not going to see it until somebody starts to see it. And then they start looking for a little bit more. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a few moments as we compare these sevens and what the scripture does with this kind of thing and movie Easter eggs. All right. We'll, we'll talk about that in a, in a few moment, moments. But Tim Mackey makes this point in the video. What is the purpose of Genesis 1? And the purpose is that God, after ordering the cosmos, comes to rest and dwell in a sacred space. It's like the whole world is a holy temple where God lives with his people. And this theme of God making a home you know, with his people is a theme that is central to the whole story of God. It bookends the story of God. You've got creation, creating a place where God will dwell with his people. The Bible ends with recreation because that is lost in between a recreation where the point is made over and over again at the end in the last couple of pages of the Bible that God comes once again to dwell with his people in a way that we don't experience now. So the earth, the whole earth, is intended to be his temple, the place. And you have to understand a little bit about temple and Judaism, and we'll talk about that later, but to understand why, why am I saying temple? Why do they say temple? It's a place where heaven and earth meet on earth, you know, where heaven and earth meet, where people would go to meet with God in a special way. So there's some other literary features besides the sevens that are brought up. In the video, they're a little bit more visible. They're the kind of thing that any of us would pick up if you just read it over and over again and underlined and started to look for patterns. There's some patterns there, specifically some symmetries in this passage that are important. And one is the introduction and conclusion to the first six days. And so it begins in verse one. It tells us, if we could have the next you know, the skies and the land, God is creating the skies and the land, and then it closes the six days, importantly, closes the six days, because the seventh day is going to be very different, by talking about God completed what he started there, the skies and the land, a repetition there. So that bookends 
the, the passage. It shows that everything is leading to the seventh day. That's the, the key thing. That's the way that the whole narrative is going, is to show us about the seventh day, a day that doesn't end, doesn't have that, that little repetition at the very end. Uh, secondly, each of the first six days starts and ends with the same words. And so we saw it in the video, and God said, and then the closing words, um, the evening, evening, and morning. So what? What difference does it make? Well, it hasn't been lost on people that God doesn't create the sun until the fourth day. But the first three days, you have morning and evening. Now, the ancients, they knew, they knew that morning, you know, they, morning was defined by the sun, from their perspective, coming up in the morning, in the east, right? And so they, they, they knew that. So is the author saying there's something more going on here than the how of creation, but really getting to the purpose of creation? And we'll, we'll, we'll go back to that question a lot of times throughout the series. And then there are three days of forming realms and three days of filling those realms, which is, again, is something that becomes very obvious. And, and when you lay it out like this, it shows how it is. And interestingly, uh, there is that bonus creation on, on the third day. They talked about it. And then the bonus creation of humanity on the sixth day. Again, the whole chapter is stylized. It's, it's stylized with the sevens, with the bookends, with the seventh day not ending that way, with repetition of certain. I mean, there's all these things that are happening in this passage. What's the point of putting so much effort into styling this chapter? Could it be, again, that it's talking more about our purpose the purpose of the earth, about our relationship with God, the, the whys of creation more than the hows of creation. So uh, the Bible is filled with um, all kinds of, of ways that it is crafted. The whole Bible is crafted. You get beyond chapter one, you don't find very many chapters like this one. You don't find very many chapters like this one. But... Uh, but you do find a continuing weaving in of themes and carrying them through very purposely uh, throughout, throughout the Bible. Everything in the Bible is interconnected. It all is interconnected. And one of the ways to understand that is through the concept of Easter eggs in movies. So Easter eggs in movies are, are, are little things that the movie maker, the filmmaker, puts into a movie that is either a clue or a special message or just something fun that they do, like Hitchcock showing up in almost all of his movies, for example. Uh, you don't see it. All these things are, these Easter eggs can be right in plain sight, but very difficult to see unless you know what you're looking for and somebody has noticed and somebody has spent the time then looking for other Easter eggs and sharing all that sort of thing. So it takes, it takes a group effort you know anything about Easter eggs and movies and you're interested in that kind of thing, it's only because there's a, been a group effort of people who really like a franchise like Marvel or just films in general and spend a lot of times comparing notes, watching films over and over again and looking for patterns and looking for some of these messages that the filmmakers have put in. And um, it, it, they can just, they can be jokes. They can be a message 
that is key to the movie or part of the key message of the movie. So uh, a couple of examples if everything I've been saying has been rather vague So to you. So this is from uh, Back to the Future. Marty McFly goes back into the past. He runs over a tree in front of what he knew in the future in his life as Twin Pines Mall. He runs over a tree. And when he gets back, it's now called Lone Pine Mall. All right. I would never catch that. Some of you would catch that. I would never catch that because I can't, I can't see things right sitting in front of me except to step over them. You know, they're there to remind me uh, about something. So um, I, I would not notice that. But it's part of that. It's a fun movie. I'm not saying it was a message movie. But part of the message is, and this is a warning to all of you, if you go back in time, don't do anything. <laughs> right? right? Don't don't make changes. You could start, you know, you could not have a future to go back to, you know, that kind of a thing. All right. So that's that's the I the idea behind that. Sometimes it's just plain fun. And so here we have one from um from uh Raiders of the Lost Ark. And you've got these hieroglyphics, except uh there's C three PO. I don't know if you can see it. And the other guy or robot that I can't remember the name of right now. All right, so it's, it's built in there. That's just a fun one. That's, that's an Easter egg, okay? Uh, the Bible is filled with Easter eggs, all right, in that, in that sense. Uh, Jesus, when he came, said that the Bible is all about him. And once you learn that and you go back and read the Old Testament in light of what he said you start seeing things that you hadn't noticed before. And sometimes people see too much, you know, they kind of start making things up, but there is so much that is clearly themes that are begun, that are completed in Jesus, patterns, um, little things, little statements that he eventually lives out that are tied to his mission. It goes on and on like that. So. Here, here's the question, because this, this is a question some of you might have right now. Can you get a movie storyline without catching the Easter eggs? And the answer is yes. You know, you have more fun if you're looking for those things. If you find them, you have a little bit more fun. But you, you can get the basic storyline. Can you get the storyline of the Bible if you're not catching the Easter eggs? I think the answer is no. <laughs> yes, you can get enough. You can, you can just read the message of Jesus and, and come to an understanding of who he was, at least a, a rudimentary understanding of why he came, and begin to follow him in your life. You, that, yes, you, so you can get the basic. There's a yes in there. But can you really understand who he was, why he came, what he was doing, the things he was doing, the things he talks about. I mean, you go back and you look at what was his number one topic. His number one topic was the kingdom of God. That's what he talked about more than anything else. What is kingdom when Jesus is talking about it? Well, you can, you can figure out some things about what kingdom is by just reading it in context and, and going, well, it's this, 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 and this. But if you don't go all the way back to Genesis 1 and understand that we were made as God's representatives to rule and rest with him on this earth, 
and that that theme is carried out through kings and anointed ones and all, all these diff- this, this whole idea of who is going to rule our lives. Uh, is it going to be us? Is it going to be my, myself? Or is it going to be God? And come to the point where we understand kingdom. And if you don't understand that kingdom that he promises that is coming is the fullness of what was created in Genesis 1 when there's a recreation and God rules again on earth because there's, there's a priesthood temple theme, but there's also a kingly theme. And we'll be, we'll be talking about that as well. So can you understand Jesus rudimentary, in a rudimentary sense? Yes. Can you grow, understand its, its implications for all of life? No. Unless you've seen the Easter eggs. I'm not talking about like seeing the sevens in chapter one, but I'm talking about all the Easter eggs that God in his sovereignty, has worked into his word from beginning to end. Okay, so a usual way of talking about this is, if you've been around church for a while, is the way that the Bible cross-references itself. And so a lot of your Bibles have either footnotes or side notes or you know various kinds of notes that will make a connection between a verse or a word or a phrase in your Bible with a cross-reference from someplace else in the Bible. When I was growing up, my first Bible that I remember having was a King James Thompson chain reference Bible. Does anybody have a Thompson chain? Had a Thompson? Yes, thank you. Anybody else? Yeah, all right. Somebody last night went like this. Like, I don't know why he was embarrassed about it, but... <laughs> It was, it was weird. I called him out, though. It was, it was, I called him out. Uh, so when you're reading Thompson Chain Reference, it has, okay, so uh, Lord is my shepherd, God's sheep, a reference number, and then you turn to the back of the Bible, and there you go to the reference number. See it better on the big screen. Um, God's people are sheep, and it gives various cross-references for that. And then, oh, also look up God's flock and some other things. And so that's, that's how that works. Thompson's Chain Reference Bible. We now usually use the language of links and hyperlinks. And part of the reason is because we live in the internet age. And we've got underlying words that you hit and it takes you one place or another on the internet. And so that's the kind of language that we use now. I don't think we've ever used the language of Easter eggs. But it is kind of like that. And so what's amazing about this is that the Bible, when Jesus was around, when the Apostle Paul was around, when everybody before them was around, there was no Bible. Bible means collection of scrolls. There was no Bible. There were scrolls. Nobody owned all the scrolls. You had to go places. We don't have the scroll of Isaiah. It's a big one. So we're going to have to go to the synagogue over here that has it. And we have some things that they don't have. And so you have to go different places. And they would share these scrolls. And as they would share, nobody had these in their houses. Uh, They would go to synagogue. They would study. They would memorize. And many people would memorize, a lot of people, a lot of the rabbis would memorize the whole first five books of the Bible so that they could could do the cross-referencing, the links, the hyperlinks in their own minds, in their own heads. 
They would get tested that way. We know this from later rabbis than the New Testament, but they would, they would test each other, uh, and rabbis would t- test their students. Okay, where else does the Bible say this? And you have to, you know, think and, and go back to it. And in the early days, there weren't even verses. There weren't chapters. There weren't spaces between the words. <laughs> All right, that's how writing was in that time. But they could do that by quoting the first few words of a sentence where there was a cross-reference. It's just an amazing thing. But, but part of what makes it so amazing is that it is so cross-referenced. Now, on the one hand, you can look at this and say, you know, with awe of how God has sovereignly brought this whole story together to talk about Jesus. That's what the Bible Project is all about, to show how this whole story is about Jesus. So, on the other hand... It tells us something about those communities that probably is central, like really important ingredient in faith, whether it be the Jewish faith or the Christian faith, which is that they valued what had come before. They valued the scripture that had come before so much that when they wrote things, they were constantly, constantly referencing what came earlier. All right, so... There's a pastor and a good friend of his, who's more of an artist, computer guy. And 15 years ago, about 15 years ago, they wanted to create a visual representation of the 63,000 cross-references in the Bible. Now, it could be more than that. It could be less. I'm not sure. Not all of those are links, per se. They sometimes are like one gospel tells the same story as another. That's a cross-reference. But 63,000 plus cross-references, links. And this is the visual that they came up with. You may have seen this. But every single one of those little strands are, there's 63,000 of them uh, there. These are the books of the Bible. There's Genesis in white. There's Matthew, which gives you a sense of how massive the Old Testament is compared to the New Testament. And then every book is marked by lighter, darker, lighter, darker grays. These little columns that come down are chapters. So if you look here, here's Matthew. There's 28 of these columns. And their lengths have to do with how long the chapters are. And then look at, look at these little fine lines that come here that cross-reference. And you get a sense of just, just watch here. See these that are going like this? They're going back to the Old Testament. Can you understand Jesus when that much of Matthew's gospel is, can you understand Jesus without understanding the Old Testament or having any sense of the Old Testament when so much is referencing, linking, hyperlinking to the Old Testament, all those, those strands that are, that are going up? And, and so let's have the, the one on Genesis, the last one here. Genesis, see there's these cross-references in here, if, if you can see it. I, I'm not sure. I haven't tested this. But you can see maybe on the bigger screen for those of you who are in here. But look at, look at all that. These are references that are coming back. Just Genesis 1, these are references that are coming back from way on that side of the chart, the ones that go, you know, just virtually straight up. You can't even see any bend in the lines. Um, it's a really interesting thing. You can look this up uh, online uh, and read a little bit more. It's a little confusing at first. Hopefully, I explained it well enough. But uh, we're going to watch another Bible Project video that talks about these links. And just to understand the context of this video, it's a very, very short video. 
it's setting up, the Bible Project this last year came up with a, uh, an app, and in that app they have a journey that you can go on where you learn to look for and develop these links. And so they're setting you up for that. They're helping you understand, this is what we're trying to teach you through this, to read the Bible in the way that it was designed to be read. All right, so let's watch the video. The Bible is a collection of ancient Israelite scrolls, and they've been brought together to tell one unified story about God's purpose to partner with humanity in ruling over all creation. Now, the biblical authors had a message they wanted to communicate, a set of ideas. But like any good story, those ideas are not presented in formulas or lists. Rather, they're explored through patterns that we call themes. In the Bible, a theme usually begins in the beginning and it continues all the way through the whole story to the end. There are lots of themes that link together and unify the biblical story, and one of our goals at Bible Project has been to introduce you to them so that you can see how they all lead to Jesus. Now we want to take a step further and help you learn how to discover and trace a theme for yourself while you read the Bible. You ready? So themes in the Bible are activated by words that get repeated throughout different parts of a biblical scroll. Think of them as links that fit together into a larger developing idea. For example, the theme of God's blessing. This word is used hundreds of times throughout the whole biblical story. I mean, if you want to trace this theme for yourself, just turn to the first movement of the Genesis scroll. In the first story, the word blessing appears three times. The first link is when God creates the birds and the fish and he blesses them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters. So God's blessing has to do with abundance and multiplying life. Then the theme develops through the next link. God next blesses the humans, giving them the honor of ruling over the creatures as God's partners. So now ruling is a part of God's blessing. Then, on the seventh day, God rests and he blesses his beautiful and abundant creation. So, we've traced the word blessing that gets repeated in one story, but we noticed how it was connected to other ideas like being fruitful or ruling or resting in life. So when you see those words and ideas, you know that the theme of blessing is being activated and developed. And that's how it works. Now you should try. We're going to practice by taking one theme and tracing its key words and images and synonyms all throughout one movement. Let's start in the first movement of Genesis, and we're going to have you trace the theme of God's spirit, or in Hebrew, God's ruach. First, watch the overview video on God's spirit, and then jump into the first movement of Genesis where you can find the links for that pattern. So we will soon be following that theme, Holy Spirit or Spirit, we're going to be following that theme. How does Spirit hovering move all the way by the time of the New Testament to understanding fully who, the, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, one of the three persons of the Trinity? We're going to, we're going to follow that theme uh, a little later, probably in about two, three, four weeks. We'll start on that. So why put forth all this effort to see these themes and to, to, to look so closely. I mean, it's one thing to try to find Easter eggs in Marvel movies. It's fun for some people. Other people roll their eyes. Uh, but it's another thing to look at these themes within Scripture that actually enhance the meaning of what we're reading because it's a theme that's been developing. 
Sometimes we do it subconsciously. We know the stories. We've been immersed in the stories enough that when we get there, we, we, have, we have that back knowledge. Other times we need to be really specific to find them. So I want to start in answering the question, why is this important? I want to start by asking you a question, something to reflect on for a moment. What book, we'll say book, there's a question in the sermon application guide, it can be a movie. Not everybody reads once they don't have to anymore, uh, reads books, but it could be a movie, it could be a, a music piece, an album or something, but let's talk about books for a moment. What book has had a big impact on your life? I mean, you read it, and maybe not like for the rest of your life, but it had an impact for a moment in your life, meaning a season in your life. Just think about that for a moment. So uh, I, I quickly jotted down four. I could have gone uh, a lot more. I could have given you a lot more. But I, I wrote down four really quickly. One, one book that if people ask me, what's, what's a list of you know, books that you think I should read? You know, kind of like, what are some good basic books? This, this book was an enduring change in my life when I read this. I came to understand God's holiness in a way that I'd never understood or appreciated before. And my own sin in a way that I had never appreciated before. And the lengths that God has gone to to make the gigantic gap that my sin has caused between myself and God, how they, what God has gone through and done and been willing to do in spite of his holiness to make things right in a way that I had not really appreciated, even though I'd been to seminary, I'd uh, gotten a doctorate, everything. Read this book back in the 90s, and it changed the trajectory of my understanding of God, the scripture of myself. Uh, and the next three are not quite so big. This one, by the, the guy who grew Starbucks. The reason this, this book impacted me was because he, I'm not sure the year that it was written, but it's when he had taken over as CEO after stepping out, and then he came back in because it had lost its way. And we were in an effort as a church, uh, I certainly was as the lead pastor of this church, I had been told by several people that we were losing our way. And I can't say that we were like, it's not like we had left God or Jesus, but we had kind of left some really important basics. And we had been working on it. When we read this book, I'm like, this gives me the language and an approach to getting back on track. And, uh, and you know, from, from a guy that I don't, I don't know anything about his, his faith, it doesn't come through in anything that he writes. Uh, the next book uh, was one that I read several years ago, and it meant a lot to me, and then I kind of forgot it, and then I came back to it, and so this last year on our staff retreat, we read this, The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek, and we had a discussion about this. And uh, this, this, this book is a game changer in so many ways. It's written to business people, but it's like churches don't get that we're in an infinite game. Families don't get that we are in an infinite game. We create these finite games as if there was this scoreboard. We make up scoreboards all the time. And uh, it, life is not like that. Business is not like that. It's an infinite game. And I'm just at a stage in my life where I'm thinking a lot about legacy and the future and all that sort of thing. 
And, uh, and I want a church that is playing an infinite game instead of a finite game. Some fake scoreboard that we have made up. Uh, the last one is something that I read right at the beginning of, of COVID. And it's the first year of Winston Churchill being in office. And it starts basically with Dunkirk and runs through the air raids that were happening in London and the lockdowns. Now, this was years in the making, this book, but I don't know exactly when it came out. It's rather recent, but it was like a book written for lockdowns. And, and this helped me as a, a leader, like I can't, I can't tell you, uh, during the lockdown that, that we went through. And so you have your books that you've read that have impacted or some other input that came into your life that just, maybe it was a conference you went to or you know, a speaker that you heard or something like that that just absolutely impacted that season of life or the trajectory of your life. Um, that's why we invest in the story of God because take all those four books, every other book I've ever read, every other book that I could read and combine them together, they don't have the impact that the Bible has on life. Because the Bible tells us the real story of our lives. It's complex enough to be able to study and to dig in and to immerse ourselves in it for an entire lifetime. It doesn't mean don't read anything else. Certainly read other things. But it helps us read those other things in light of truth, in light of reality. That's why we invest. Stories bombard us. We are told we are in this story or that story. We'll, we'll come to this later, but one of the stories is you be you, you know, you know, go for, you need to figure out your purpose and you're going to find it in here. That is, when we get done with Genesis 1, I hope you can see that is, that is a self-destructive story. Does it mean your life is going to be horrible? You might be really successful following that, but by what standards of success? There are stories that are bombarding us that, that can take us in trajectories in life that will have enduring, negative, painful consequences. Stories that we buy into. God's story is the true story. It tells us why we were made, how we can live. It has grace for all the times that we don't live that way. Uh, and it shows us a way to get back on track over and over and over again in our lives. And I, I, I don't know that we can do it, but I know the Holy Spirit can do it, that you would be so enthralled with that story that when you see the other stories in the Netflix series you're watching, the book that you're reading, the talk that you heard, the teacher that's influencing you, that you can hear all of that in light of God's story. And you can critically analyze what's happening. As you see something coming on your social media feed, and it's a theme that's just running, and it's hitting you over and over again, and everybody's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can look at that and say, really? Is that really true? Because you're going to have the story, the real story, to hold it up against. So really quickly here, how can we get more out of our Bible reading? Four things. Read it with the church. Remember, this never existed 
until people put it together, all right? The church put this together. Just, I mean, to, to order it, to put it together, to say this is in, this isn't in. It's Christians coming together, prayerfully listening to the Holy Spirit, seeing the word, a criteria that came. I mean, and it goes and translated and put into paragraph, all of that. You can't read the Bible on your own. You can't read the Bible on your own. And you shouldn't continue to read the Bible on your own. Getting a global perspective uh, while you're reading. Getting the perspective of someone in a different economic class from you while you're reading. All of this comes together in a way to help you read and study the Bible better. Number two, read it slowly and repeatedly. We talk about that all the time. That's how people who are looking for Easter eggs in movies, they watch it with great detail, trying to see everything on the screen, listen to everything that's being said to look for those sort of things, and they work on that together. So John Collins, the, the artist behind the Bible Project videos, the deeper-voiced guy in the, that's always asking the questions, John Collins talks about, and I talked about this not that long ago, how he used to read the Bible to try to get the point every day. And he felt like if he didn't get the point, God would be angry at him. And he came to the point that he stopped reading the Bible until he read, met Tim Mackey, the other voice, the theologian, and started to see the Bible in a different way. And then he came to a conclusion. He said, I'm just going to read, and God, my wise and patient mentor, will shape and form me in ways I don't even understand. Number three, read it with awe. I think I've said enough here. The combination of God, God, you know, God breathing into the scripture writers, as the scripture describes it, and then humans made in the image of God who can create masterpieces. And so we can be in awe. So in a sense... Uh, you can be an atheist or you can be a believer in the full inspiration of Scripture and both of you together look at Genesis 1 and go, wow, or look at the Bible and go, wow, if you'll take a look. And then number four, follow a reading or study plan. Okay, so on my, on my blog, I have a whole bunch of resources that hopefully, you know, you can choose one and hopefully it's not overwhelming. There's some great ones. I remember years ago, about 15 years ago, as a church, we, about 150 of us went through this. It's a chronological Bible put together by the Daily Walk people, or the, I can't remember the name of the organization. I, I just took it off my shelf, and it's got underlining on almost every page as we went through that. And I just got an email from one of our members who lives in Florida now, and she said, just want to thank you. I've just finished reading through the Bible again uh, for the 15th time, I think it was. You got me going, and I've been doing it every year since, and I have no, no regrets uh, for doing that. And so there's all kinds of plans out there that can help you read the Bible, understand it better, but it can be as simple as take time, because we study the Bible together, take time to answer the questions, to dig in to the sermon application guide every week for your small group, instead of rushing through it and completing it in five minutes before your small group. That's one of the ways that you can actually study the scripture without having to go into anything elaborate. But there's some tools out there that you may not know about, and I just recommend that you go to my website and look at that. So imagine with me 
investing in your life now. Uh, especially those of you who are younger. You know the magic of compounding interest. You can have the magic of compounding interest happen with regards to tr God's truth in your heart. If you'll dedicate yourself to daily, daily, reading the scripture. Daily means almost every day. <laughs> Not that you have to feel guilty when you miss a day. All right. But daily immersing yourself in scripture. Think about the compounding interest. Think about the legacy that you're going to leave. Think about the character building that you're doing. Because in reality, you can, you can get to the end of your life and you can see that you had, wow, uh, compounding interest of knowledge about fantasy football <laughs> or the NFL because you listen to 40 hours a week of sports talk radio. I'm not saying it's bad to listen to that. Don't, don't hear that. Just understand, what are you investing yourself in? It could be celebrity gossip. It could be uh, uh, immersion in whatever series comes out on Netflix or uh, Prime or whatever it is, just kind of immersing yourself. And you can get to the end of your life and say, wow, I've got a boatload of knowledge. I, I have great rewards that I got from the places where I worked. I completed some incredible projects. And the people there don't even remember who I was. <laughs> and my kids really don't care at all. The people that are closest to me in my life, I really care about the projects that I completed at work, you know, that kind of thing. They can, that can be what you're compounding in your life, or it can be something that's building your character, that's forming Christ in you, that's giving you a vision of eternity that you can bring into your everyday life. Which is it going to be? Which is it going to be for you? Well, in the Word of God, we are given a, an opportunity to remember the Jesus who this whole story is about. And it tells us that we should do it. We should remember what he came for and what he did. And we're going to begin our response now to his Word, remembering the words of Scripture. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this wherever you drink it in remembrance of me. The scripture tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, thank you so much for giving us your word, for giving us direction, guidance, counsel for our whole lives, for building into us. Help us to see your story, understand what our purpose is, to live out that purpose, empower us. Help us to be committed to immersing ourselves in your word so that our lives are changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.